All right, uh, good afternoon and welcome, everybody. Uh, there's a special delight in presenting not only a colleague from Oxford who does work on matters related to Israel studies, but also uh, a good friend, Professor Adriana uh, Jacobs. Uh, Adriana is, professor, is Associate Professor of uh, Modern Hebrew Literature and Fellow at the Oxford Center for, Center for Hebrew and Jewish Studies. Um, and she's a fellow at uh, St. Cross's College. She is also on the steering group of the research program on comparative criticism and translation, a torch project at St. Anne's College. <laughs> and uh, we are here in part to celebrate the publication of her new book, a recently published book, um, translation, I'm sorry, Strange Cocktail, Translation and the Making of Modern Hebrew Poetry. Uh, and the title of her talk today is a gift from Sinai, translation and nation building. Andriana, thank you for oh, coming. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Yaakov, for including me in this seminar series. So a lot of my book deals with late 19th and early 20th century modern Hebrew poetry, but then towards the end is dealing when, with uh, the transition um, from uh, diasporic Hebrew to then territorial nation-state Hebrew, um, so pre-48, post-48. And so what I'm going to talk about today um, is not quite post-48, but it's getting there. So I think it satisfies the rubric <laughs> of Israel studies. Um, and it's going, as the title indicates, um, it, it'll deal with the relation between translation and the nation-building project in Palestine. Um, in pre-state Palestine. So um, this is from a part of the book that is sort of historicizing a bit um, the role that translation played in the development of um, modern Hebrew as a national literature in particular, um, and looking at certain writers and moments from this uh, kind of literary history. Um, so I'll just start. In the early 20th century, Hebrew translation activity became a more visible literary practice in the Hebrew, as well as a crucial and valuable component of the modern Hebrew literary economy. Between 1910 and 1933, the Hebrew literary enclaves of Europe and Russia began to move and consolidate their operations in Palestine. And for much of this period, particularly the years 1908 to 1920, translation was a major indispensable component of modern Hebrew literary production. According to the historian Zohar Shavit, such was the role and status of translation that it was, in her words, quote, designated to fulfill part of the functions of an original literature, end quote. The translation of different kinds of texts from scientific, historical, linguistic, and literary, and within the literary both high, what we would think of as high and low literature, also encouraged the development of distinct linguistic and literary registers in Hebrew. Editors and publishers began to establish strict standards for the kinds of works they sought to publish, and they invested primarily in what they considered to be the classics of world literature, with an emphasis on translations from German, Yiddish, and Russian, in order to generate a corpus of translated work in Hebrew that could serve as a model for original Hebrew writing, and also to effect transformative changes in original Hebrew works through the influence of these literary translations. So in this respect, Hebrew translation activity in this period took on the status of creative literary labor in the early decades of the Jewish nation-building project in Palestine. Although it wasn't well represented in the early 20th century book market, poetry and poetry in translation circulated widely in literary journals and almanacs of this period, as well as in the Hebrew press. 
like in journals and newspapers, uh, often featured poems, both in original Hebrew and in Hebrew translation. This was the case throughout the better part of the 19th century through the 20th, so there was nothing kind of new about this way that poetry circulated in the Hebrew literary market. Um, and in fact, today, poetry, both original and translated, um, features daily in the Hebrew press as well. Um, nevertheless, when I glanced at the publication listing for uh, Stiebel Press, which was by far the most prolific publisher of Hebrew translations in this period, so like the 1910 through the 1930s, um, it made it very clear that poetry in Hebrew translation represented a very small percentage of the translated books that were published between 1917 and 1946. Um, Stiebel wasn't the only publishing house, Hebrew publishing house, that was invested in translation, but given its wide distribution um, relative to other presses and its financial stability, we can draw from this publication listing a pretty fair, fairly accurate picture of the state of poetry and translation in the Hebrew book market in the early decades of the 20th century. So in this context, it was notable that in the year 1918, of the 16 titles that Stiebel considered high priority for translation into Hebrew, one finds Alexander Pushkin's Russian novel in verse Evgeny Onyegin. It was the only book of poetry that was on this list of must translate texts. We know from letters that pass between um, the publisher, Abraham Yosef Stiebel, and David Frischman, who at the time was the editor of Hatekufa, um, that they had reached out to the poet Chaim Nachman Bialik to translate this particular work. And they were insistent that Bialik in particular do this because they felt that only a poet of his caliber could do justice to Pushkin, who was widely regarded as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Russian poet. Uh, of, the, of his time, and one of the founders of modern, modern Russian literature. And by the time Frischman approached Bialik with this idea to translate Evgeny Onyegin, Bialik had already paved his own career as the newly minted poet of the national renaissance, as the critic Josef Klausner dubbed him. A translation by Bialik, therefore, would have validated the value that Frischman, for instance, was placing on literary translation and on his insistence of, on including first-rate Hebrew translations in Hatekufa. But it would also do something more. Having Bialik translate this work would also make a statement about the status of Hebrew as a full-grown 20th century national language and literature. However, the comparisons to Pushkin may have deterred Bialik. He was being referred to as well as sort of the Jewish Pushkin. Um, and he was intent um, as a young writer on forging his own identity in Hebrew. Um, so while it appeared for a time that he was um, w considering the possibility of doing this translation, in the end, um, he declined. And the translation by Bialik of this particular text never materialized. Um, but what interested me about this little exchange between Stiebel and Frischmann was that despite Bialik's resistance to, pop to translating Pushkin, he was actually, though, a very prolific translator, both of poetry and prose into Hebrew. Um, in fact, there's this uh, widely circulated maxim in, in Hebrew that reading a text in translation is like kissing through a handkerchief. It's a neshika mibad lamit pachat. Um, this is the Hebrew equivalent of poetry is what's lost in translation or something like that. So as is the case for most translation max maxims, Bialik's words have a more, far more complicated source. 
Um, in fact, locating an origin for this phrase is difficult given that Bialik himself often repeated variations of kissing through a handkerchief in various contexts. Almost as often as he also referred to translation as a, an act of almost divine creation. As a Jewish metaphor for translation, this handkerchief can represent a space between distance and intimacy. But Bialik also understood that translations took their own life apart from their originals. And in this respect, the handkerchief also suggests the thin, sometimes translucent space of mediation between an original and translation. And this particular space of mediation has um, wide implications when you're translating Hebrew in a time of nation building, as I'll now discuss. In 1917, Bialik delivered a speech at a gathering of Chovevei Sfat Ever, lovers of Hebrew, which took place in Moscow that year, shortly after the February Revolution. In his remarks, which he later published in an essay titled Al-Uma Velashon, on the nation and language, Bialik offers what appears to be at first glance a scathing repudiation of translation, and of literary translation in particular, and this is where he invokes um, the metaphor of the handkerchief. And I have the quote, because it's quite long, so you can follow. It's the first quote on the handout. Um, and I'll just read the English. There are original Jews who are bound to the foundation of the national spirit. And there are translated Jews who live their lives not in their language, but in foreign tongues. Miguel Cervantes wrote, even the best translation is only the reverse side of a tapestry. He who uses a foreign language, who knows Judaism only in translation, that person is like someone who kisses his mother through a handkerchief. Anyone who glances through a translation is just looking into a blurred mirror and can't appreciate its full flavor and the full longings of the spirit, because this language alone is the language of the heart and soul. He who has stood on this Mount Sinai, who forged a covenant of first love with his national language, and to it bound the dreams of his youth and ideals, this person will no longer forsake his people. And you can see that in brackets, I offer the actual quote by Cervantes. So even Bialik is slightly manipulating his, um, the, the, what Cervantes is actually saying. Um, so that, that's more uh, just to, so that you, you can see how um, oftentimes these sort of ideas of translation get quickly politicized um, in different contexts. So to be a translated Jew, according to Bialik, is to be cut off from the full experience of Jewish tradition and Jewish textual tradition. And to remedy this condition, Bialik was committed to the project of kinus, Jewish cultural ingathering. That is the reconstruction of a Jewish canon that would form the basis of modern Hebrew national culture. To this end, in 19, as early as 1901, he had founded Moria, a Hebrew publishing house based in Odessa. And although World War I interrupted its operations, it was briefly revived between 1917 and 1918, which is when this address took place. The Hebrew translation of key Jewish texts written in other languages, including Yiddish, was a major component of this project. In fact, the reference to Miguel de Cervantes's remark on translation is a nod to Bialik's own Hebrew translation, and I put that in quotes because it's actually more of an adaptation of Don Quixote. Um, and Bialik's uh, um, translation appeared in 1912 and was published by the aptly named press Turgeman, which Bialik also founded. So Bialik had his, um, he had a lot, his hand in lots of pots. <laughs> Editor, translator, poet, public lecturer. 
Nevertheless, despite the sort of um, Zionist ideology that un, un, was underpinning his remarks, Bialik had yet to settle in Palestine. Um, in fact, aside from a visit in 1909, Bialik spent most of these years in Odessa, where he was committed to the diasporic Hebrew literary economy, a crucial stage Bialik believed in the emerging national culture in Palestine. When he immigrated in 1924 and settled in Tel Aviv, he brought with him his publishing house, Devia. So what interests me about his remarks is that they don't, these particular remarks don't repudiate translation as a whole. They seem to, but they actually don't. Rather, Bialik objects to the translation of Jewish life, rituals, experiences into other languages. In fact, um, there's a great quote um, that I um, also address in the book when um, years, years later, the Hebrew writer and Nobel laureate Shai Agnon uh, met with the American Jewish writer Saul Bellow. Um, and he was telling Bellow, he said that you need to be translated into Hebrew because that's the only way you can ensure the afterlife of your work. And he tells him, the language of the diaspora will not last. So this idea that Hebrew offers this uh, afterlife is, is one that um, goes back to uh, echoes throughout this, the 20th century. But translating into Hebrew also serves the aim of creating a new linguistic beginning of sorts uh, for an emerging Hebrew national culture, one in which these Hebrew translations will assume the status of original texts. When Onyegin did appear in Hebrew translation in 1937, which was actually the centennial of Pushkin's death, it did so under somewhat remarkable circumstances. It appeared in two separate translations. The first was by Avraham Levinson, a Hebrew writer and translator who had completed the translation years earlier but had not found a publisher. Um, but his translation was completely eclipsed by the other Hebrew Onyegin, which was translated by Avraham Shlonsky. Shlonsky, a Russian-born Hebrew poet who had settled in Mandatory Palestine in 1921, had become the central figure of the Hebrew modernist movement in Palestine. And Shlonsky's participation in the Hebrew literary culture of this period marks an important shift, in my view, in the culture of poetry translation, which began to take on uh, greater urgency and visibility in the 1920s and 1930s. Although poetry and Hebrew translation didn't make any major financial contribution to the Yeshu's literary economy, and certainly poets weren't making a lot of money off of it, its cultural capital was unquestionable. Um, and the Hebrew modernist investment in translation had much to do with this. Although the focus of the Hebrew publishing industry in the early 20th century was on original and translated prose, the poem nevertheless held the status of a kind of national genre at least for the first half of the 20th century. Poets were the major representatives of the emerging national literary canon in Hebrew, and it was in this arena that po of poetry where the more polemical discussions on language and culture took place. In fact, Shlonsky's debates with Bialik, who had been anointed the Hebrew Meshore Leumi, the national poet, mark um, an important tr transition in the development of modern Hebrew poetry in ways that also implicated translation. Because Shlonsky sort of set up a kind of duel between him and Bialik that was very much a sort of generational conflict. He sort of would publicly deride Bialik's poetic style or nusach, which, um, uh, and, uh, um, and sort of uh, portrayed Bialik as a sort of an arcane writer who was relying on certain conventions that uh, were now like biblical intertextuality, for example, um, that in his view were, were becoming outmoded. Um, 
and, and that had characterized Hebrew poetry and translation of the late 19th century, whereas in Shlonsky's view, the 20th century needed to mark its modernity with an entirely new style of writing. Um, and in Shlonsky's view, Bialik had never successfully transitioned out of the 19th century. Um, and he hadn't established a model that would form the basis of a truly modern Hebrew poetic idiom. But the differences, as Shlonsky articulated them publicly, between the two poets also rested in their divergent views with regard to the status of Hebrew in the yeshuv, or in, um, in mandatory Palestine, in the Jewish community of mandatory Palestine. And this also um, implicated translation as well. So in 1927, Bialik, who had been appointed president of the Hebrew Writers' Union, gave a keynote address in Tel Aviv at a reception in honor of the Yiddish writers Sholem Ash and Peretz Hirschbein. Although Bialik strove to be diplomatic, he reproached the language politics that preoccupied the younger generation, including Shlonsky, when he remarked, in quotes, that language is just a part of nation building and not, and I say this in quotes, everything. He then went on to describe the relation between Yiddish and Hebrew in terms of translation, noting that translations from Hebrew to Yiddish and vice versa had over the course of the 19th and 20th centuries enriched both languages. And in, here, in, this, and in these comments, he also invoked the figure of the Talmudic Meturgeman, or translator. And this is the second quote. Um, which is shorter, but it's great, so I wanted you to have it before you. Um, the Talmud tells us that the Meturgeman is obligated to translate even a list of names, which ostensibly does not require translation. Shnai mikra targum, twice Torah and once Targum. But in the Cheder, they would translate every Hebrew word into Yiddish, even if the word remained unchanged in translation. So. Um, this expression, twice Torah and once Targum, comes from the Halakha, or Jewish law, which prescribes that the weekly Torah portion should be read at least twice in that week, as well as in translation, and specifically in the Targum, or the Aramaic translation slash interpretation of the biblical text. Bialik transposes the Talmudic Meturgeman to the Eastern European Cheder, the traditional study house for young Jewish boys, the very space that 19th century maskilim um, or Hebrew writers of the late 19th century repudiated in their pursuit of secular education and European cosmopolitanism. Bialik brings his audience back to this diasporic space, arguably to remind his audience of the family ties that these languages share, and also to reestablish a continuity between the spaces of Jewish diasporic tradition and Hebrew national culture in mandatory Palestine. And in this respect, Bialik's attempt to accommodate both Hebrew and Yiddish in the project of Kinus marked a shift from his 1917 push for Hebrew monolingualism, which is what we see in the first quote. But Bialik also intended to illustrate tactfully to the Yiddish writers and their supporters in attendance that Yiddish writing could not escape the trace of Hebrew. But Shlonsky understood from these remarks that the reverse also held true that if Yiddish writing couldn't escape Hebrew, then it could also be argued that Hebrew couldn't escape Yiddish. So Bialik's address sparked very heated debate, um, or at least also in, in, with respect to how Shlonsky reacted in the sort of debate Shlonsky um, stirred up afterwards. In particular, um, he was taken to task for his now famous slash infamous assertion that there is between the two languages a kind of match made in heaven, zivug mina shamayim that can't be divided. 
In his response, um, Shlonsky declared, and I, this is a long quote, um, we never accepted this match between the languages, so we're not going to dance at their wedding. We view this catastrophe of bilingualism as we would tuberculosis, gnawing away at the lungs of the nation. We want our Eretz Israeli breath to be purely Hebrew with both lungs, end quote. And it's important to note here that although Shlonsky is repudiating or appears to be repudiating multilingualism, his own writing was actually quite multilingual. In fact, he has a number of poems where he's sometimes juggling up to five languages. Um, and also he was a prolific translator from many languages. And so this activity, his own literary activity sort of contrasts very sharply, I think, with his public statements on language politics in this particular period. And in fact, so Shlonsky's remarks brings me to another key, for me, a key historical episode in this sort of history of modern Hebrew literary translation in a time of nation building. And that's the 1942 publication of the anthology Shirat Lusia, Russian Poetry, which was edited by Shlonsky and um, his contemporary, the poet Leah Goldberg. And I actually, when I came to Oxford, um, and I went, I, my office was at first at the Oriental Institute, and it was empty except for, um, for two books. Um, the first one was a, uh, I'm not even going to mention it, it was a very strange book. <laughs> it was a book on Jewish sex by Shmuley Bochea. <laughs> so I just, I put that aside. But the second book um, was Shirat Lucia. Huh? Someone had left a copy of it in my office. Oh, predestination. Yeah, so I felt like... Um, it was Bashert. I was supposed to have it. I was supposed to come to Oxford. <laughs> but anyway, so this is the copy that I recovered there. Um, anyway, so um, this collection um, is really fascinating. Um, it was actually meant to be the first volume of a whole series that they were going to do on world, on, on world poetry and translation. They were supposed to follow this up with an anthology of French poetry and then English poetry. But so far, this is... All they, I think, that they managed to do was the Russian one. Um, it's a collaboration of 17 translators, um, including Shlonsky and Goldberg, and it offered a sampling of 34 Russian poets. Um, and these, these were poets whose works spanned the 19th century or the Silver Age, um, such as um, Anna Akhmatova and Osip Mandelstam as well as the futurists, um, uh, like Vladimir, if you know Russian poetry, these names will be very familiar, Vladimir Mayakovsky um, and Velmir Khlebnikov, as well as um, state-sanctioned Soviet poets. And this combination would have been unprecedented in the Soviet Union at the time. You wouldn't have seen the sort of anthology there. So it's a, it's a very sort of special kind of gathering. Um, that hasn't been replicated, as far as I know, in other contexts. Um, at the same time, the selection of poets and poems reflected, in large part, the editor's own personal and biographical connection to the Russian literary tradition. Um, the scholar Nina Segal, who's written about this collection, says that in its structure, it undoubtedly represents an emigre or outside perspective on Russian poetry and its historical evolution but also reflects the inside view of the cultural situation in Jewish Palestine at the beginning of the 1940s, end quote. 
This balance is also evident in the ways these texts were translated, both faithful to the varying styles and idioms of these um, poets, Russian language poets, but also adapting these texts in several instances to realities in mandatory Palestine. And this um, ranges between certain animals are translated to reflect kind of the animals you find in, um, in Israel. Um, the flora um, was also translated to reflect the landscape, and, but every translator had their own way of dealing with these things. So you, you, in this one collection, you see a whole range of translation practices, which is really fascinating. Um, but what's interesting is that the term translation is never mentioned in the editor's introduction. They never explicitly acknowledge that that's what this anthology is. Um, and years later, the scholar and translator Amidav Dikman reflected on the influence that Shilat Lucia had on readers um, and poets and translators at the time when, he's, um, when he observes that never before had there been in Hebrew poetry such a complete and profound accord between original and translation, and never had there been such a bold and clear relation between the two in Russian poetry. So the appearance of this anthology during World War II is hardly incidental. And in fact, Shlonsky and Goldberg explicitly framed the anthology as a collective response to the war. They assert the power of poetry to, quote, shed light, as they put it, in dark times, illustrating this point through their reading of specific poems and poets that engage and respond to Russian and Soviet political upheavals beginning with the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in March 1881. The underlying objective of their historical survey is to show, through the example of Russian poetry, the pivotal role that poets can and should play in national life and in times of crisis. Shlonsky and Goldberg characterized their objective as follows, and I quote, the offering of a portrait of a generation, a biography of its tradition, which in every nation and language one discovers in the best poetry." End quote. This portrait, however, served a dual purpose. It gave Hebrew readers a key collection of late 19th and 20th century Russian poetry. But it also served as a portrait of a generation of Hebrew poets inspired and shaped by these very works. In the, in the pre-state period, anthologies of this kind also reflected a desire to create what Benedict Anderson has called an imagined national community consistent with particular ideologies and politics. The specific language that Goldberg and Shlonsky use in their introduction, this matan de mut de yokano the offering of a portrait of a generation, it's a little tricky to unpack in translation, is fairly innocuous at first glance until we reach the end of the introduction where they conclude on this note, and I quote, destruction surrounds us. Our hearts are alarmed by the apocalyptic signs announcing, as it were, the end. But it is in such times that poetry has known how to decipher these signs with light and not with darkness, end quote. The revelatory power of poetry, and in this case, poetry and Hebrew translation, suggests an, a relation between this offering and the Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, as related in Exodus 31. By casting, indeed translating the light of revelation onto the political and cultural concerns of the Jewish community in Palestine, Shirat Lucia positioned poetry and its translation prominently in the nation-building project while also reasserting the prophetic role of the poet to chart a new future for modern Hebrew poetry. 
The poet Chaim Guri, Chaim Guri, who was born in Mandatory Palestine in 1923 to Russian parents, recalls that although Russian was never spoken at home, the publication of Shirat Lusia returned to him the Russian past of his parents, but in, quote, our Hebrew. For a younger generation of poets like Guri, who would become a, a major poetic voice of the post-48 generation, this collection offered the possibility of carrying Hebrew poetry in a new direction, paving the way for the statehood generation that would emerge shortly thereafter. That it did so in what Guri refers to as our Hebrew is a critical contribution of this anthology. For in their translations, Shlonsky, Goldberg, and other translators strove to represent, as well as to create, varied registers and styles of poetic language in modern Hebrew as a way of bringing these possibilities to the attention of the next generation of Hebrew poets. Two years later, so in 44, Goldberg published an essay on Bialik that further contextualized her understanding of the role of translation in the development of modern Hebrew poetry in a time of nation building. In her essay, HaMishorir HaLeumi, The National Poet, she advances a poignant portrait of Bialik as a cultural translator and mediator, and in some way recovers him um, from Shlonsky's sort of presentation of, of Bialik as someone whose work is now outdated and out of touch with present-day national concerns. And this quote from her essay is the third piece on the handout. Bialik returned to the Jewish people their childhood. Poems that recall childhood, Zoha and Safiyah, it, they convey the same real feeling of the real world of childhood by giving it a name for the first time. All these things were given to us through his poetry in the Hebrew language. He translated our childhood into Hebrew until it became the origin. And in this way, he taught us that a full light from the beginning is possible in this language, in this culture. Goldberg acknowledges how writing in Hebrew in the early 20th century could be a translational and revisionary act. In this case, as a way of rewriting the Jewish diasporic past to create a new Hebrew national beginning. This translation is interlingual between the languages of the, this past and modern Hebrew, situating Bialik's diasporic Hebrew as the point of origin for what later becomes a territorialized national Hebrew. And while this passage could be read through the lens of Zionist rebirth and renewal, by explicitly referring to Bialik's composition of these texts as translation, Goldberg calls attention to the ways in which translating and writing are mutually inclusive and transformative practices in the now national modern Hebrew literature of the period. Surely, she writes, this is the first step toward a new life. Thank you. <laughs>